Welcome to the LPP Podcast. LPP is the Life Process Program, a non-12-step program for people who want to free themselves from addiction and addiction-related issues in their lives. By the way, when I say addiction, I don't mean only drug and alcohol addiction, but also addictions to food, to love, sex, gambling, pornography, technology, and a whole range of other experiences. So to learn more about the program, or to check free resources like articles, videos, blogs, and podcast episodes like this one related to solving addiction-related problems, visit our site at lifeprocessprogram.com or follow us on social media using any of the links in the show notes. We've created a new series of episodes called LPP and Harm Reduction. The series contains four segments that you'll hear over the next four weeks. Today you'll hear part one, which we call The History of Harm Reduction for Addiction. I don't need to go into too much preamble today. I think the episode explains itself quite reliably. Even if you don't know what harm reduction means with respect to addiction, that's explained fairly well in the episode as well. Just remember that if you have any comments or questions or suggestions about the episode, that you can reach us anytime at info at lifeprocessprogram.com. Enjoy episode number one. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with the creator of the Life Process Program, Dr. Stanton Peel. Zach, it's always a pleasure to be with you on a weekday night. What could be better? I think that congratulations are in order, and I don't think I'll need to edit this out, that you, at least to some extent, put your newest book, which is your memoir, to bed. I've got a final manuscript submitted on my memoir, which is called A Scientific Life on the Edge. My quest to change how people see addiction. So uh, it summarizes my life to date. And, you know, I'm happy about it, yes. I feel that's germane. I was thinking about, as we were preparing for this today, that I've come to know, I mean, at least two, but let's say two different facets of your professional personality. There is the Stanton, who I think doesn't mind taking one on the chin as long as he gets closer to ground truth or some kind of understanding that's going to lead to greater good of humanity. And then there is the meta aware you the Stanton who reflects on the impact that he's made on the addiction field, how other people in the field imprison themselves with their own bad logic, no matter how many cogent warnings and suggestions that you offer and how ironic it is that your ideas presaged any good sense that we now witness in terms of drugs and addiction and harm reduction. And I'm hoping that if I play my cards right, our listeners are going to get a glimpse into some sort of amalgamation of these two sides of you, because we're going to be talking about harm reduction. And the Life Process Program, of course, conceives that overcoming addiction doesn't necessarily mean that people stop using drugs or stop drinking alcohol altogether. That could be a position that they and take. And it certainly but... doesn't mean that they'll stop having sex or stop eating or stop shopping. Precisely. I mean, after we coach people who want to get a handle on their eating or maybe promiscuity and to that end, at, just as you say, we're not going to tell people to remain abstinent from food or to never be intimate with another person. It's just that way of thinking when you uh, expand the concept, not only to drugs, but to just a range of experiences a person could have that whole way of thinking about combating addiction is harm reduction at its core. I know I'm being long winded, but let me just see if I could bring this all to a logical starting point. 
we as a staff were talking about harm reduction the other day, me, you, and all the coaches in the program. And to be honest and frank, we were saying something like, you know, we ought to do more to posit ourselves as the harm reductionists that we are. Um, the idea of harm reduction is becoming popular. So we would be remiss if we didn't draw attention to that element of our program. And one of our coaches, her name is D said, um, and I'll paraphrase, well, you know, this program is created by Stanton Peel after all. And I guess the humor of that statement as deep as it runs can only be understood if somebody's aware of your history. So I might call you one of the founding fathers of harm reduction or someone who's always been drawn to it and has always advocated that it be applied before anybody else. And you've even done so in the face of harsh criticism, to say the least. And today I want to talk to you about harm reduction, the history of the concept and the history of your relationship with the concept. And I'd like to bring that history lesson right up to the present so that we can talk about what harm reduction means to you and to all of us in today's world and what it's going to mean for us in the future. Of course, I'm going to give you the floor now. I just ask that maybe before we turn back the clock too far, let's actually offer a definition. Um, what, what is harm reduction in a nutshell? Let me start by saying I think that was a really great summary you gave about what my memoir is about and what the, how I can be very frank about myself and at the same time how I want to really propose my ideas in a way that you know, gives them essential place that I think they ought to have. And harm reduction is one way to illustrate that. My fundamental way of conceiving addiction means that harm reduction is essentially a part of it. If you form a connection to something that's overwhelmingly negative because it fills your identity and your need package, um, it's an addiction. And there's nothing about that obviously that limits it to drugs. And as soon as you expand the concept to include other compelling activities, shopping, sex, love, that's, you don't want to, as you say, uh, go without intimacy, you can't go without food. As soon as you see that essential definition of addiction, harm reduction's part and parcel of it. You can't escape harm reduction. And so, for somebody to say to me, oh, I like your definition of addiction. Uh, I see addiction the way you do. Only I feel abstinence is essential. That, that's a fundamental contradiction, and we're not really talking on the same wavelength. Now, when you say um, my definition of harm reduction, I, I devote actually uh, the, land, but the parts of my memoir are the background to me, the journey, which is sort of my life's course because I've been around so long. And in fact, my career was derailed due to harm reduction. And we'll get to that shortly. And then the third part is here, now, and then, which goes on to current issues about addiction. The fourth part is called uh, what will happen to addiction, what will happen to the United States, and what will happen to me, you know, which is a pressing interest to me. But in the third part, and to some extent where I thought we might end up, but I'll, I'll, I'll throw it right up there. Harm reduction means improving, focusing on improving a person's life. The issue of whether they're abstaining or not, it's not even secondary. It falls into place when you're addressing the appropriate issue, which is how are you going to help this person to be more fulfilled, to be happier, 
to be more successful, to live by their own values, a better, more satisfying life. That is what our program is aimed for. And obviously, it's involved with addictions and substances among them. That's going to involve some way of recalculating your relationship to those things. But it's that's the tail wagging the dog or whatever. How you deal with or approach or think about dealing with substances comes out of living your better life. Right. So let me go back way to the – what year were you born, by the way, Zach? In 86, after uh, everything you're about to talk about. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. It's scary, but, you know, as I understand time, that, that's the way things work. You know, time <laughs> goes on. Yeah. And sometimes people are born at different times. Uh, I'm coming to grips with that. I was doing some reading before we talked tonight, and I was thinking about how did all this happen before I was aware of existence. But anyway – Go on. Sorry. Well, that's funny. You know, I have three children and my oldest children are 10 years and eight years older than my youngest. Mm. And a a young child says, can't imagine there was a family before they were born. What do you mean you went to Disney World? Uh, You know, before I was (laughs) with the nerve of you. In 1976 and in 1980, the Rand Report released reports at 18 months and four year follow ups of the NIAAA funded treatment centers. And that population was quite alcoholic. They were drinking over 15 drinks daily at intake on average. <clears throat> and the RAND report found that a lot that their outcomes very if you ju- if you tried to justify the treatment success on the basis of um, abstinence, you couldn't do it. But in fact, many people improved. And then they get set about defining controlled drinking. And many people achieve controlled drinking. And many people uh, achieve what we might now call more harm reduction. They improve. And there was an, a hue and an outcry that's hard to believe. On the morning of the report, the release of the first report in 76, the National Council on Alcoholism uh, gathered together a lot of the leading figures in alcoholism and said people reading and learning about this will go out on the highways and there'll be mass uh, assassination and murder and suicide because people have been told it's okay to drink again. And one member mm. uh, of uh, the board of the Rand Corporation, a man named Pike, tried his best to suppress the report. Can, uh, can you believe that? In the United States of America, I mean, in the Rand Corporation, probably it may not have exactly the central place today that it once had, but it's was the primary research organization in the United States, did this thoroughgoing piece of research, and the goal was to suppress its results. And then there was a four-year follow-up in 1980. Not quite the same hue and cry, but the response, the main result of the RAM report for me and for everybody was to realize how crazed American alcoholism treatment had become around abstinence. It had an abstinence fixation. And that was driven home in 1982 when Mary Pendry and her colleagues published a report following up on Mark and Linda Sobel's research that had claimed to show that alcoholics treated the Patton State Hospital in San Diego who were taught to control their drinking did better than alcoholics in the standard 
AA program that San Diego Patent State had used. And the results were um, they had far fewer days of excessive drinking. It was a harm reduction depiction of the outcomes. And Penury et al. attacked the study and show, and they highlighted it. It was published in Science Magazine, which is just remarkable, just remarkable. And the data, they didn't actually cite any data about the abstinence-only group. They only cited the individual instances of the 20 patients at, at Patton State in the control drinking group, and they cited every one of their uh, excessive drinking days. And that was their study published in Science Magazine. It was a non-study. It didn't purport to show that the control drinking group did worse or not better than the abstinence-only group. It only wanted to show, look, it wasn't perfect. And that is an important ingredient in harm reduction. Controlled drinking as a concept was meant to show, well, look, people will become controlled drinkers. That, like, that's a thing. They would become like social drinkers. And then, of course, AAA said, well, that's impossible. They must abstain. And the entire middle ground, what we now, thank God, harm reduction really had a lot to do with this. We now have room to think, well, wait a second. Has, have their lives improved? Are they succeeding better relationships at work and being satisfied with themselves? Uh, the two main dimensions in DSM-5 are, for being classified, are impairment and distress. Are they less distressed? Are they less impaired? None of that was present in this debate. And even those who, can, who defended controlled drinking as a thing said, well, this many people became controlled drinkers. And obviously, if somebody has a binge drinking night or three in a month, well, that's not controlled drinking. But then, obviously, hopefully, what now everybody recognizes is to ask the question, well, how many bad drinking days did they have previously? How many bad drinking days did those in the abstinence group have? And how well did their overall functioning improve? Those are the critical questions that were completely obliterated. And that science article did more to prevent the appearance of a concept of harm reduction than vir virtually, and the reaction to the Ray report, which preceded it, than virtually anything else. It kind of re-upped American temperance, abstinence fixation ideas, which AA, had, of course, solidified and, be, and they had got to be in such a dominant position. 1976 and 1980 is one and five years, respectively, after you wrote Love and Addiction. So I imagine this isn't your first encounter with the idea that the Guild of Addiction Professionals in America is a religion. And it's not, I think I've said this before, it's not, not like a religion. I, I really believe that the way that they went thinking about this and wanting to make sure that, the, that no research with reasoned questions saw the light of day, I think any naive anthropologist coming in and looking at it would would see it as a religion. Is this the first time you're really convinced of this, or did you already know before the race well, studies were published? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. So I wasn't focused on alcohol. I was more focused in love and addiction. I discussed heroin addiction more. I was aware of Charles Winnick and natural recovery. I was aware of the Vietnam data. And so in 75, I published Love and Addiction. And by the definition that we've discussed, I already was harm reduction in Love and Addiction. But the next year when the RAND report came out and Pike, Thomas Pike, the guy who was on the board of both the NCA and the RAND Corporation, that whole warfare, that whole explosion just kind of shook me and alerted me oh my God, look what's happening in alcoholism relative to the way I decided to look at addiction. Mm. And I instantly turned my lights in that direction. I mean, one of the things I say in my memoir is virtually nobody really proposes to be expert in both drugs and alcohol. But I always, since I had a genetic, I mean, the, the key chapter in Love and Addiction is the general theory of addiction. Since I was talking about things beyond drugs or substances altogether, I immediately had to tune into alcohol as well. And for years, I, was direct, I directed my attention in this way. And personally, what I, I wrote two articles that put me in the middle of all of this. I wrote an article in Psychology Today called Through Glass Darkly, which reviewed the Pendry Sobel's dispute. And then I wrote an article for American Psychologist, which is the keynote journal for the American Psychological Association, called Cultural Concept of Alcoholism. And that put me in the middle of this high, entire dispute, although I was come lately. I hadn't known, I didn't know the Sobels at the time I became aware of the science article. And I only became aware of the RAND report secondarily. And then that derailed my entire career such as it was. I had, in 1978, I had been invited by the Addiction Research Foundation, which is now CAMH, Canadian Addiction and Mental Health Center, to give a, a keynote address uh, at their national convention, which put me on the map. And then I was blown off the map by my article. I was giving a keynote address at the Texas Summer School of Alcoholism, and they disinvited me to give that speech. And I was able to reinstate myself by threatening them legally. But after that, I just wasn't invited anywhere. I was so far, and that's, the University of Texas is a state institution. I mean, it's famous for being an open-minded liberal bastion. And they tried to eliminate me giving my keynote presentation based on my article in Psychology Today about the Pedro Sobel's dispute. It's impossible to overstate the mayhem that this all brought about. So let's jump forward to the late 1980s. Um, I had to get a regular job. I became a working man. You know, I had my third child, Anna Peel, and I went to work doing, I have kind of a technical training in doing survey research and research design. I went to University of Michigan in social psychology, and I went to work for Lewis Harrison, and I went to work for Mathematica. And one day while I'm sitting in my office of Mathematica, Ethan Edelman calls up. Describe who Ethan is. Well, at the time, he was a faculty member at Princeton. He, uh, and he was exploring legalizing drugs. And a big part of exploring legalizing drugs was the concept of harm reduction. He didn't invent the concept of harm reduction, but he brought it to the fore. You know, Ethan has a gift 
of kind of consolidating ideas and presenting them to the public. I mean, although this took decades, so it wasn't like he said, oh, I've got an idea how to get Americans to accept legalized marijuana and to understand harm reduction. But harm reduction, as Ethan was, as I said, there's drugs and there's alcohol. Ethan's never been interested in alcohol other than having a drink on his own. Uh, and harm reduction with drugs meant two things. What Do you know what the two keynotes of harm reduction were? I don't know where you're headed. Go well, ahead. needle exchange. Oh, okay, I got you. And uh, methadone maintenance. Obviously, we call them harm reduction because neither of them is abstinence. Controlled drinking was sort of let's make people learn how to drink right. right. And harm reduction was... Well, you know, people take drugs and everybody says don't take drugs, but people still take drugs. Now what? And so if you give them a clean needle, they wouldn't get AIDS. The AIDS crisis had begun and methadone had been around for quite a while. It was a way of controlling your narcotic addiction in a more socially controllable way. Uh, you got somewhere and you took it orally and so you didn't get a high from the injection and that was it. So Ethan was about harm reduction and I, I understood that. And the main idea, controlled drinking was a way of drinking. Harm reduction was a concept. It was non-abstinence and taking off the worst rough edges of using a substance that often had negatives. And the big negative with harm reduction with heroin had become HIV infections. So, you know, Ethan took that ball of wax and built it and built it to Linda Smith Center and then to the Drug Policy Alliance. And meanwhile, we're now in the 90s. And in the 90s, America fought clean needle programs, they were called needle exchange then, tooth and nail. And Ethan's not a bitter man, generally, but he'll sometimes say what the 12 steps will have to come to deal with is the way they fought needle exchange and clean needle programs for 10 years or more, and that resulted in hundreds of thousands of people's died. Uh, HIV went from gay people to IV drug users. And we had an active core of politicians and addiction experts who were against harm reduction. Now this is crucial because in their way of thinking, let's talk about Ethan and uh, harm reduction is, the problem is abstinence only thinking. That's the problem. Um, Americans are so wedded to that that they can't uh, it's almost as though they'd rather have people die than let them use clean needles and just a little sidebar here uh, Ethan I've seen him say there has to be an accounting for hundreds of thousands of people dying no there doesn't and I'll just I'll throw this out here maybe she'll sue me Christine Whitman I lived in New Jersey at the time Christine Whitman was the governor of New Jersey she appointed an AIDS commission. And she appointed a man named David Trost, T-R-O-A-S-T, who I've never met, I don't know him. This all took place while I was living in New Jersey. And he headed the AIDS commission and he recommended clean needles. And, and if New Jersey would have 
done it, it would have been the first state in the United States to adopt it. And Christine Whitman came out against it. She humiliated Schroes. She said, who could come up with an idea like that? And at the time, quite a bit of research was appearing to show it saved lives and it actually cut back on people using drugs because, uh, and as a rule of thumb, people got their drugs on the street. And as soon as you went to a needle exchange to get needles, you were in contact with some kind of a care worker. And anytime you're in touch with somebody who's got your best interest in heart, they would say, you know, like the Lower East Side Needle Exchange Program or Harm Reduction Center, whatever it is, they're saying, well, are you doing all you can to take care of yourself? Are you eating all right? Are you avoiding infections? And by the way, if you want to quit taking heroin, perhaps that could be good for you. We have people here who used to take heroin and don't anymore. And Christine Whitman fought, she was a governor, roughly, I think it was 1994 to 2002. She had two terms. And she fended off a needle exchange for eight years ago. Uh, Christine Whitman is regarded as a liberal Republican. She'll appear today on the most liberal shows on television, on MSNBC, um, Morning Joe, and everybody regards her as a guru and will say, oh my goodness, Look how anti-research uh, and anti-scientific uh, Donald Trump is, because she's a moderate Republican who can put down Trump. And she embodies know-nothing moralism, which is anti-harm reduction. You can see, right, Jack, why was Christine Whitman against harm reduction? Because she didn't want her kids to take drugs, and she just thinks people shouldn't take drugs. Oh, and I think it, I think it could be deeper than that, too. Yes, what you said, risk averse, but part of the risk, I feel, at least part of the mechanism by which you could ignore something that's life-saving is that it, it, it would be a political risk also. So imagine yes. you make the wrong noises and because of you, something happens and that there, something goes wrong and it's, and it's on Whitman's hands that this political thing has gone wrong and it's suicide for her. And I'm sure that her framework for understanding the entire thing couldn't have been something like, well, if I don't do this, thousands of people will die. But in effect, consequentially, that's, that is what happened. Well, let me ask you a quiz question. Okay. Uh, while uh, Christine Whitman was governor of New Jersey, who was president of the United States? Was it Clinton? Yes, it was Bill Clinton. And okay. imagine that Bill Clinton was in favor of needle exchange. Would you guess he was? I would guess that he wasn't. He wasn't. And, and his reason would be a, a little of what you said. He would just say, well, it's politically not saleable. The devil you know. Right. He's not going to come out as a kind of a reputed liberal, he would say. And, uh, you know, Bill Clinton knows how to get elected president of the United States. He must know something. Yeah. He would say it's a non-starter. You're not going right. to come out in the United States of America and say, well, we're going to set up program. I mean, the issue to this day the United States is the only Western government that does not federally fund needle, clean needle programs. Mm -hmm. It at least stopped making them illegal. You used to go to jail for creating a, a needle exchange. Christine Whitman encouraged local county sheriffs to put needle exchange activists in jail. I mean, she's a monster and, and she's revered in New Jersey and on liberal stations. Bill Clinton was against needle exchanges, too, and he would just, you know, I mean, let's say Bill Clinton knows which way the wind is blowing. 
he just said, well, that's not going to work. I'm not going to, you know, forget it. Now, I, I'm, this is as good of a time as any, I think, to ask you, what is it about you, if you can even be so reflective, that allowed you to both completely understand the destruction that this way of thinking caused, but also to be a vocal critic of this way of thinking, of this sort of status quo, take no risk, save no lives way of thinking. I mean, it put you, of course, fighting upstream against a, a dominant crowd. Well, that is a, what a great question. To hear Stanton's answer to this question, make sure that you tune in next Monday for part two of this series called The Life Process Program and Harm Reduction. Thanks so much for tuning in.